Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And uh, yeah, we're still working on the American Civil War. We've got a few more episodes to get through it, but this is a good one. This is a fun one, I think. I really enjoyed reading uh, the documents in um, in today's uh, selection. It covers October to December 1864, which of course... Uh, corresponds with the election uh that the the lincoln's re-election um and then the beginning of his lame duck period which of course uh culminates in the passage of the 13th amendment although we don't quite get to that yet um although it's in the backdrop it's in the it's it's hovering in the, the backdrop of, of of everything we're doing uh in this episode so um yeah we start with a really good document today um and that is the address of the Colored National Convention of October 1864. This was uh, a council attended by Frederick Douglass and William Wells um, Brown. William Wells Brown, of course, I did a whole series on uh, a while, like about a year ago on this podcast. Um, Henry Garnett, uh, John Langston were others, and there were many who arrived. It was in Syracuse, uh, about a three or four day conference, and then uh, this address, which is kind of the, the statement of that convention, uh, was written mostly by Frederick Douglass. Um, but it's really good um, because it's, it kind of condenses so much of what we've been talking about, about the black experience in the Civil War into one statement. Um, you know, things like the role of African-Americans in achieving victory over the South. And, and that's one thing that's common in these documents is just like victories around the corner. Like the re-election of Lincoln kind of sealed the deal. Militarily, the South was defeated. Politically, they were defeated. Uh, internationally, they were defeated. So it was just uh, running off the clock in a way. So of course, there'd be a lot of excess useless deaths because of that. But uh, with the fall of Atlanta, the siege, you know, of, of Petersburg, you know, the, the, the end is coming, um, especially with Lincoln's reelection, because he was going to, he committed the nation and, and he was backed up by the voters of the nation to, uh, uh, to a military victory and national unification. But uh, anyways, uh, this document begins uh, with kind of rehashing the black, black's role in victory over the South. Um, and uh, kind of repeating what, what Lincoln's been saying since like the Gettysburg Address, that this war will, will uh, create, uh, a kind of revive righteousness in the nation, uh, reform the moral core of the nation, transform the nation into what it should have always been, getting rid of that original sin of slavery. Um, and then it says, okay, now we need to move forward and think about what the, what rights are going to be established and it makes a very systematic case not just for the end of slavery that's that's a given the 13th amendment you know some kind of legal foundation for the end of slavery of course of course but um one of the big questions of reconstruction would be what political rights will blacks have and what will be the foundation of those political rights what will be their limits if any um 
and of course the the egalitarians uh, were saying no limits on those rights but you had those southern states who people in those southern states with political power would be fighting for limita limitations on those rights um, and would often gain um, those those limitations over the course of the following decades but the debate uh, for radical Republicans and and this convention is full political equality, which means the voting voting rights, full voting rights, at least for for men. And that's another issue we're not going to get into probably in this podcast series. But um, the you know how the Fifteenth Amendment wrote in masculinity as you know as tied to voting rights for the first time in American history. That was like an issue that bothered the feminists, right? We probably won't get to that here. Maybe in the future we'll, we'll talk about that uh, a little bit more, the suffragist movement and their suffragist response to the in Reconstruction. But political rights. Why? Well, the argument they make is multi multifaceted here. Or it's multi I guess it's Douglas mostly right in this, but it's a statement for the whole convention. Prejudice in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party exist. They might disagree on slavery, disagree on the war, but ultimately you're going to find prejudice in both. So black voters cannot be trusted to, uh, in a paternalistic way to embrace either political party. You know, the support, black support for the Republican Party would have to be earned. And it could never be fully trusted, right? And it could only be bought by the vote, in a sense. And so without the vote, you'd be left with just this kind of paternalistic hope that the Republican Party would fall through on things like civil rights or equality or, or economic policies that would benefit former slaves. But no, that you can't because there's too many racists in the Republican Party. Both parties should be feared. So... That's why you need a constitutional amendment ending slavery, of course, but also the electoral franchise. And of course, Douglas is going to say this has already been earned. This has already been earned on the battlefield and through black support for the war effort. Um, and essentially, it cannot, you, white voters cannot be relied on. Now, of course, black voters would always be a minority, but they would still be a significant enough of a minority to, to force the honesty of whatever political party they wanted to support. Um, and then they make he makes the argument, well, so the argument's like it's earned, it's needed to protect ourselves from racist parties, both both parties being racist here, um, even if different ways. And then the other argument is a broader philosophical argument they make, which is just that this is a requirement in a republic, right? It's kind of, you can't have a republic if all free people can't vote don't have a say. I mean, this is an argument for women's suffrage too, although they're not making it here. They're making the the, the much more limited case, or case for black men to have the right to vote. But he says, you know, this is especially necessary for the poor too. So there's like a class argument that is being made in this document as well. Now it's quite long, this document, but it's really, really good. And it lays out the argument more or less as I, as I just, um, on, you know, rolled it out. And I think it just sums up so much of what we've been talking about 
bit by bit in different documents about the you know or or it's actually kind of condensing the argument as it's unfolded from the beginning of the war where Douglas was saying you should arm black people we should have a chance to fight for our freedom and earn it and you know moving towards the the d debate over political rights it's quite well it's quite it's, it's quite a good uh address or, or kind of manifesto if you will i don't know how it's delivered it's called address but it, it adopted to an address to the public written by douglas Uh, so I don't know if it was ever spoke. It was probably a pamphlet of, of some sort or published in newspapers, I guess. All right. So next we have Sherman writing to Grant uh, right before the March to the Sea. Um, and he's just saying what the, his plan is. And he says, well, um, don't occupy Georgia. We don't have enough troops. You, you know, there's no point to do it. Just make it militarily useless by destroying the... Um, destroying the infrastructure. So he says, we're going to forage. Uh, he talks about how it's basically going to be impossible to hold the roads. That would cost us casualties and men to do that. So just smash the roads. Um, and it's a very short letter. Well, I guess that's all to say about that. Um, so uh, we got a little bit more here about the Sheridan, Juba Early, Shenandoah campaign. I kind of skipped over a lot of that last time too. Um, but this particular account of that um, really emphasizes the desolation of the countryside. I just think we get more and more of a feeling of like the, the war hitting, you know, the farms and the countryside more than it did earlier in the war, I suppose, where the human costs were always, were always high, but you didn't get the sense of the physical just devastation. Um, there's a, a author later on we'll look at who actually makes this point directly. It's like uh, the reason the war took so long is because we kind of tried to fight the South as equals and, and, and didn't push the overwhelming force earlier in the war. But there was probably political reasons why they couldn't do that. But... Um, once they really started taking the fight to them, you know, it seems the, the war changed quite quickly. He writes here, though, this guy, what's his name? Stephen Dodson Ramister, writing to his wife, he says, uh, this beautiful and fertile valley has, has been totally destroyed. Sheridan has some houses, all of the mills and barns and every straw and wheat stack burned. This valley is one great desert. I do not see how these poor people are to live. We have to haul our supplies from away up in the valley. Unquote. So this is kind of like the the lesser known March to the Sea, right? It's like the March to the Shenandoah Valley. That, that was a place in which the Confederate Army often marched through, where cavalry, you know, raids often marched through, where, you know, it had a lot of resources. It was taken earlier in the war, right, by in that Jackson campaign. And so now the, the solution to this problem is just to devastate the countryside. It's, it's very, in, in terms of strategy, very similar, I think, to the march to the sea. Uh, this kind of theme is continued with John B. J. Jones's diary. Now, he's working in the Confederate uh, War Department in Richmond, and he's focusing in this uh, diary entry on, I mean, I'm on, on the logistics of defending Richmond. That's his main uh, focus but you know more he's just talking about the declining morale 
the high rates of desertion. The, and he says basically the only way to avoid this is to go total despotism. The only way to avoid um, th th this constant desertion, this constant drain on the military. You know, the soldiers know the war's lost, I think, by this point. So they're just leaving, going home, risking their the consequences for it because staying is, you know, they're just spinning their wheels and risking their lives for no reason. He writes, uh, officially that the number of exempts and of the middle class of citizens arrested in the streets in some way marched to the front, a majority have deserted. Men with exemptions in their pockets going to or returning from market have been seized by the adjutant general's orders and despotically hurried off without being permitted to even send a message to their family. So the sense I get from this is that they're so worried about desertion that even people with official leave are being hauled back to their units before they can escape because it's just such a trickle or flood, if you will, you know, a pouring of, of, of human resources away from the, the front line. He writes later, I hear of more desertions. Mr. Seddon and Mr. Stanton in Washington are engaged in a singular game of chance. The harsh orders of, bo of both cause mutual abandonments. And now we have a spectacle of men deserting our regiments and quite as many coming over from the enemy's regiments near the city. End quote. There he's kind of hinting at desertion being a problem on both sides, but it's like who can afford that more? Right. So, um, yeah, the question is how do you win this war without basically total authoritarianism and then even that case is it going to work right not that the south wasn't authoritarian already obviously but um oh the next document i thought found kind of interesting which was samuel francis dupont who's in the navy and he's writing to an old friend a british friend in uh who who's in china um, so he's a captain in the Royal Navy and he's writing him a letter and they met like back in like 1858 in China and became friends. And so he talked a lot here about his own, the own politics of in the, him being in the Navy, like relieved of command and had other kind of political issues with his, with his career in the Navy. Um, but he does some meditation on the civil war itself. And he says, yes, it's, um, he, I think he's the one who says like, we sh we never should have like played even with the Confederacy in the first place. We should have just gone in. Um, but he also says like, um, you know, every country has civil wars. And he says like, you've had your civil war, France had one, and the, the cost in blood and treasure is just as high. It's just part of many nations history. And we're not exempt from that, which I think is, uh, not a typical American response to this. Americans have that idea of exceptionalism, and, and while Europe, the old world, does things that way, America's not going to do it this way, that way. But DuPont here has a more, I guess, neutral idea that this is just what happens to countries when they, um, when they reach a certain age or have certain crises. America's not going to be immune from that. Um, he does, though, lambast quite seriously the British policy, which I, I think he's not entirely fair with. I, you know, we got that idea, frustration um, from the Adamses writing from London, especially early in the war. By this point in the war, it didn't seem a bigger issue. But um, DuPont here seems to think the British kind of egged the South on to secession um, and then played footsie with the South a little too long despite them being pro-slavery. So that's the betrayal. It's like it's 
they are the pro-slavery one. You're a pro-anti-slavery nation, yet you're you're flirting with recognizing them, giving them hope, um, giving them sympathy. And we've seen writers from the British point of view who had more or less given the South this this sympathy. I think that's true. I think that's uh, um, there's some truth to that, but I think he's overstating the case a little bit because obviously Britain never formally recognized the Confederacy. Um, but I think I think he was hoping for more firm, early on, definitive statements from the British, which would have put a pin in like Confederate hopes of a uh, of British recognition, I suppose. So I, I I see both sides here, but my hunch is he's kind of overstating it. He talks a lot about atrocities in the war too. Again, saying we're not that exceptional, but also hoping for the for the end of the end of the war. Here's where he says, yeah, the radical error. He says the pervading radical error of the North had been to permit the contest to become an equal one. This equilibrium, at last, had lasted three and a half years, but it's fortunately disappearing. Our superior numbers are telling everywhere as they should have in the beginning. End quote. Well, would that have been possible? Could Lincoln have said? We want a round. We want 100 million volunteers, or we want 500,000 volunteers instead of the 30,000 volunteers. Would that have been politically possible? I have my doubts. Um, um, next, we hear again from Catherine Edmondson, that North Carolina plantation lady who uh, has a diary which we've referenced many times in this series. She's just complaining about. The barbarism of Grant. I think this is where that mythology of Grant's kind of begins, is during the war by Southern writers who want to say, oh, Grant was just a butcher. He just threw men at the enemy, fought a war of attrition. That's how he won. He didn't win through his genius or his logistical ability or his proper strategy or his will or commitment or his the, the model he presented to the soldiers. None of that. It's just barbarism. Right. Um, and she complains about the Republican victories, too, just kind of saying, well, you know, just kind of complain. What can she do? Right. Uh, is this our first? Um, I, no, this is before the election, so she couldn't have known. Um, so I guess she's still hoping McClellan could uh, be victor. Right. He says Lincoln's election, if there's a better if there's a choice, it's better for us than McClellan because he is the greater fool. Oh, and so, so she's. I think I, I think I jumped ahead to a different source, which kind of just oh, whatever, you know, the, the wrong guy won. But she's saying here actually Lincoln would be better as president for the South because he's a bigger, bigger fool. Totally wrong about this, but you know, people's political choices and opinions are not always based in reason, as we know. All right, moving on to the next one. This document I really, really liked because it's kind of connected to me. My people were German. They, they, they came after the Civil War, um, maybe in the 1870s or so. But this is um, a document written for written in German for, you know, it was translated at the time and published as a pamphlet. And, it, of course, we get the translated version here. But this is a guy by a guy named Francis Lieber, and it's a argument to German Americans about why they should support Lincoln uh, in the election, trying to rally the vote. And he actually goes through quite a lot here of interesting things. Um, 
for one, he talks about how like the know nothings have married themselves to the Democratic Party. And McClellan is basically an extension of the know nothing um, movement. And I think there's some truth to that. Um, so he says like the anti-immigrant vote is the Democratic Party vote, which is of course contrary to how we often think about it because we often think of the like in New York City, the Democratic Party having that immigrant vote locked up through the Demo the Democratic machine there, but but Lieber here is making a different argument that it's actually the anti-immigrant vote is more tied to the Democratic Party, and and I think both of these happen to be true. I think the the idea of the New York machine controlling the immigrant population is a product of New York alone, not the party as a whole, and I, and I think that's probably true through you know later in American history as well. Um, he takes on the issue of states' rights, but he he has a he has a very I think solid argument here saying yeah maybe states have some rights but so do individuals have rights and this war is about those individual rights as much as it is about states rights but i think there's a more fundamental argument here and that is people make the constitution like there's been there's so much focus on you know in the states rights argument and in the lost cause argument about the constitution and the rights of states and and limited government and what the constitution says and all that and Libra here just makes the argument, you know, which I think is much more revolutionary. And I, maybe it's because so many of these Germans who came to America come out of a revolutionary experience, the revolutions of 1848. And when those fail, many decide for political reasons as well as economic reasons to go to America. And they come as committed Republicans. And even if they're German nationalists who leave, but they're, they're, they're Republican in their politics and their worldview. And of course, the radical idea is we're not bound by a constitution any longer than we as the people decide to keep it. And so he says, yeah, it doesn't really matter what the constitution says. What matters is what we're making and what we're remaking. We're remaking the country at this moment. And that's one reason to support Lincoln versus someone who's sort of looking back to the past. He talks about why did you come to America in the first place? You came for a republic. You came for liberty. You didn't come for slavery. You know, you know slavery is bad. You know it's a blight on this country that you have made your home. Therefore, you know, don't back down when we're this close to victory. He talks even in the terms of German nationalism, saying German nationalism was about unity, national unity, and about civil freedoms, right? So if you think back to the revolutions of 1848, those are the two themes, right? the unity and civil freedom. And what happened in after the 48 revolutions was this turning their back on the civil freedom part of it. And Prussia just embraces national unity and, and kind of co-ops nationalism in that way. But, um, but these ones who left certainly had both of those in their minds, yeah, more so than probably other Germans. So he says like Lincoln is the vote for national unity, civil freedom, anti-slavery, openness to immigration, and all these things. So, um, but I think the strongest of that, of the, the strongest argument is that love of country, nation, freedom are all superior to the Constitution. Because they're all rest on the Constitution, like, or the Constitution rests on those things, on our love of country, the nation, freedom, and all that. The Constitution is the afterthought. It's the product of our patriotism, not the source of our patriotism. 
which I think some people might contest, but it's it's the argument he makes here, and I I think it's a pretty solid one. And, and he concludes, yeah, vote for vote for Lincoln clearly. Don't vote for McClellan. So then we come to the election, and our first uh, results, I guess, in this anthology come from George Templeton Strong, who of course is quite happy to see McClellan lose. Um, he just mentions the election results. I think Lincoln lost New York City, but won New York State, as I as I recall. Um, here's his conclusion. Here, um, it's where does he say? Um, well, he starts with a bunch of Latin, and then he says the crisis has been passed, and the most momentous popular election ever held since ballots were invented as decided against treason to disunion. My contempt for democracy and extended suffrage is mitigated, end quote. So it's kind of funny. This is just a diary, of course, but, you know, it's like when the election goes your way, you're like, oh, thank God for universal suffrage. When it doesn't go your, your way, it's like, you know, all these voters are stupid. We, maybe we need fewer people voting or whatever, or have intelligence tests for voting. Um, his public position is probably more nuanced than that, but um, but he kind of gloats here a lot about the defeat of the Democrats. And speaking of gloating, we get Lincoln sort of gloating here. Because if you remember back in the last episode, he wrote a memo that basically says, it's my duty to cooperate with the president-elect. Um, and it's my duty to try to save the union as, if possible bef during the lame duck period. And he, he sealed it and he had everyone in the cabinet sign it. And now he opens it. After he knowing he wins the election, he opens it. And he reads it to the cabinet, and, and it's kind of a nice gloating moment for him too, right? Where his fortunes had changed so rapidly because of the fall of Atlanta and, and victories in Virginia and defeat of Jubal Early in the Shenandoah Valley, all these things. Um, you know, give Lincoln a, a nice moment here where he can... Um, kind of bask in the in the glory of his victory all right um so on a much sadder note is this letter from john s mosby to philip h sheridan so what happened here this is in virginia what, what happened was sheridan's command executed some cavalry soldiers confederate cavalry who were basically acting as bandits so i think they were treated essentially as as bandits, um, not lawful combatants. I don't know if there was a misunderstanding or just how they were presenting themselves, like not being in uniform or, or something, but I, I think they must have not been in uniform. Um, most Union soldiers believe them to be no different than civilian guerrillas, is, is what the editor here says. So anyways, it wasn't Sheridan himself, it was uh, Alfred Torbett, one of the commanders in Sheridan's command, had two of them hanged and four shot by Union soldiers. So like six were um, executed. And then another one of Mosby's ones was hanged by another person, William H. Powell, in response to killing of a Union soldier. Um, so seven dead altogether. So then Mosby says like, oh, we got this prisoner exchange going on, but I'm keeping seven behind to execute. Kind of as, as retaliation for that. And he's like, oh, this is very brutal. You forced me to do this. I have no choice. But if you're going to execute my soldiers, I'm going to have to execute yours. But the, the 
it's a horrible situation. Obviously, and imagine reading this letter, knowing like you executing these soldiers led to the execution of these Union soldiers, who I think were just chosen by lots or whatever. Really horror, horrific. It's like paths of glory kind of stuff here. But uh, the bright side of this, I guess, is he tried to ref re re reflect like the, the way they were killed. So three were hung. So he hung three, right? Um, and then there was like four shot. So he was going to shoot four of them, Mosby. But two were shot and survived. The other two got away. So this was like a like four of these seven retaliatory executions were totally botched by the confederates they can't they can't even do their war crimes right no wonder they lost all right um next oh there's these documents are so good this this selection um the next one is we have uh jane camper uh a, a formerly enslaved woman who was freed by the vote in Maryland to emancipate the slaves immediately, uncompensated emancipation, um, went into effect November 1st. She um, went to her master and said, I'm free now, I'm leaving, see you later, I'm taking my kids. And, the, and then the master said, okay, you're free, but your kids are still mine. So he was trying to argue that there was like a grandfathered law somehow that these kids would remain enslaved. Why does he want these kids? I don't know. Maybe he's a perv or something. Um, but he says, no, like, your kids aren't free, you're free. Uh, I think he's just maybe desperate to keep these slaves or whatever. And she writes to the government, or she makes a statement to the government saying, you know, this is what happened. And then she went back. She actually says how she went back and just basically freed her kids. Like, woke them up, the, you know, got them out of wherever he was keeping them. But he's like, but she says, like, oh, he, we're promised bedclothes. We're promised, like, you know, a set of clothing and 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 furniture and things like that and we want those back so she's making a petition to the government i think reconstruction in the reconstruction era we see a lot of these kind of petitions and complaints and efforts at redressing whether it's about property property that was taken by the union army you know people suing to get that back former slaves so enslaved people had property that's one thing i read a book about this that um the union army you know, although legally enslaved people didn't have property under the laws of slavery, in the context of emancipation, people who remained in slavery because of the power of Southern landowners, when they were liberated or when the Union Army went through, they might use some of their property, like a cow or a chicken or you know foraging or whatever. But they were compensated for that later after the war because the Union Army declared that stuff that they produced, their side businesses and profit, you know, their side farms were actually their property um and that i think was retroactive too even stuff that it was there theirs before the emancipation proclamation like if they owned a cow before the emancipation proclamation owned of course not legally but they they had a cow that they used many slaves did this to supplement their diets and their incomes well they had no income to begin with but to to give them some extra cash right um that if that later on the Union Army took that cow and used it for the war effort, they were compensated for that. That's the point I'm making. So now we have uh, a really long document by James A. Connolly from his diary. 
talking about November 17th, November 17th to December, November 23rd, 1864, dealing with the, he's witness to the March to the Sea. And there's not, it's just a great document, I think. It's just the details of the things happening, the interaction with the Confederates or the, maybe not Confederate soldiers, but the Southern civilians, um, you know, the interaction with the soldiers, because they would go to a town, rip up the rail lines, maybe do some burning and looting or whatever. But, you know, then they would just hang out in the town foraging, interacting with the local people. And so there's cases of them drinking together. There's, of course, cases of all these plantations are being emptied of their slaves. So these former slaves are wandering about, interacting with the army, hanging out with the army, talking with the soldiers, foraging on their own. So there's a lot of details about this here. Um, which is kind of fascinating. Um, now, second guessing the destruction is something maybe we don't normally think of when we think of the March to the Sea. Um, obviously, it wasn't indiscriminate looting. I mean, it wasn't scorched earth kind of uh, policy. It was like infrastructure was being targeted, plantations were being targeted, war and you know things that would help the war effort in some way were being targeted. But, you know, other things got destroyed. Uh, and he complains here about um, the plundering of the state library. He says, it's a downright shame, he writes. Public libraries should be sacredly respected by all belligerents. And I'm sure General Sherman will someday regret that he permitted this library to be destroyed and plundered. I could get $1,000 worth of valuable law books there if I would just go and take them. But I wouldn't touch them. I would feel ashamed of myself every time I saw one of them in my bookcase at home. Now he says something else here, which bothers me uh, to have to repeat, but he says, I don't object to stealing horses, mules, the N word and other, and all such little things, but I will not engage in plundering or destroying the public libraries. So the, the, the horrible thing here is of course, he's calling enslavement and women little things that can just be taken by the army, not, freed people, these were free under American law, under the Emancipation Proclamation. But that aside, this, that little kind of shocking end to this document kind of sours it a little bit, but it's a really interesting look at just the day-to-day -day social life of the March to, sea, March to the Sea, the foraging, and then meeting other people, former slaves who are just sort of doing the same thing out there foraging in the countryside interacting with the soldiers, drinking together in some cases. Really, really interesting. All right. Next, we have John Wilkes Booth's uh, To Whom It May Concern Letter. This is part of a, of a scheme that John Wilkes Booth tried to engage in after Lincoln was reelected to kidnap Lincoln. This was the plan, to get up, get supporters together, people who would help him do it and then essentially kidnap Lincoln and then question mark profit at some point somehow get to his goal which is southern independence John Wilkes Booth is an unrepentant white supremacist um, pro-confederate person and he doesn't mince words here now this is a, he actually wrote a couple copies of this letter one to Booth's mother and the other for um another actor, John Sleeper Clark. Um, 
And so this will later be published during the investigation about the Lincoln's assassination. But at this time, it was he was trying to recruit supporters to this kind of lost cause. I'm saying that on purpose because there's a lot of lost cause kind of arguments here. I guess the difference is lost causers tend to try to downplay the role of race and slavery in the Confederate war effort, and Booth does not. He writes, this country was formed for the white, not for the black man, and looking upon African slavery from the same standpoint, held by those noble flamers of our constitution, I, for one, have ever considered it to be the great blessings that God ever bestowed upon a favored nation. So he's saying white supremacy, like a white nation, and slavery being a gift from God. Um, then he talks about his experience, which some of you may know about, the fact that he was at, he was part of Lee's command during the the Harper's Ferry thing and, and the, the capture of John Brown, and he's very proud of that. It's like one of the highlights of his life was the... Um, was capturing and, and John Brown leading to his, ex his execution for treason. Uh, still, though, to, on top of all this, he's got a lot of the lost cause idea here about the right to secession, this idea of the Constitution providing states, the state's right to secede from the Union and kind of God's on their side and the kind of the nobility of their struggle, um, all that. We felt so bad having to lead the country we love, but you know, but we had to defend our rights. That that kind of lost cause stuff is all throughout this document uh, as well. But on the other hand, it has that strong racist, uh, not subtext. It's it's overt in the text. It's it's right there. Next, we have Henry Adams writing to his uh, brother, Charles Francis Adams Jr., about Lincoln's re-election, and he's, of course, quite happy about that. He sees this as, as many people were seeing it, as we've seen as the first step towards ultimate victory. Now, the only real battle account we get here is the Battle of Franklin. This is, is this the last major battle of the Civil War? I think of, of the later battles. This might be the like the biggest you know in size and in casualties. So after Atlanta fell, what was left of the Army of the Tennessee escaped because they weren't siege. It wasn't like Vicksburg, right, where the Army of the Tennessee escaped. And then so Sherman went forward with the March to the Sea, but some of the Army of the Cumberland, I want to say, had to stay behind and deal with the remnants of the Army the the the. Um, the Confederate Army of Tennessee. And that was, uh, so that was General Thomas, a, a relatively unknown figure in Civil War history, George Thomas, but a great general, uh, versus Hood, who was commanding what was left of the Army of the Tennessee. And so it was like 30,000 men versus 25,000. So it was a fairly even battle, but Thomas just crushes Hood, um, defeats him, um, it's a, it's, it was a pretty bloody battle. And I think it was one of the last of those really kind of conventional two armies kind of bashing each other, you know, kind of battles of the war. Cause in, in around Richmond, it's, it's kind of, well, it kind of reduced to that kind of world war one style trench warfare by this point, but major victory crushing the army of the Tennessee and ending the fighting in that part of the country. 
Um, next, and we're nearing the end here, is Lincoln's final State of the Union address, or address to Congress in December 1864. Um, there's a lot here just about government, because the Civil War was not the only thing the government did. It had other foreign policy issues and other policy focuses and things like that. But, you know, relations with Canada, relations with Latin America. Ultimately, though, the war is what goes on. And he actually says it at one point after talking about all the different departments in their reports. He says, like, the war goes on. The war continues. Since the last annual message, all the important lines and positions occupied by our forces have been maintained and our army had steadily advanced. Quote. So he's basically saying, we're winning the war now. We're in a good position to win the war. And then he turns from this to say, now is the time to pass the 13th Amendment. So he says, do it now, do it in the lame duck period. And if you've seen the, the movie about this, you know the story, of course, about, about how Lincoln was trying to push for this before the Confederate peace offer could come because, you know, the, the idea, at least presented in the movie, is that as long as the war was going on, people would vote for the 13th Amendment as a way to end the war. But if the war ends, people would not be feel the pressure to vote for the 13th Amendment. I doubt that's true. I, I, I reckon the, even if the war had ended early, the new Congress would have passed it. But, but Lincoln, for whatever reason, wanted to push it through, maybe for symbolic reasons, with that lame duck Congress, and he did. Um, so he's pushing for that here. He says, he, he argues basically, um, the people have spoken and, and let's get on with it. It's the voice of the people now for the first time heard upon the question. In a great national crisis like ours, unanimity of action among those seeking a common end is very desirable, almost indispensable. And yet no approach to such unanimity is attainable unless some deference should be paid to the will of the majority. End quote. So that's his argument. He's like, yeah, you may have been elected by other people, but the people have by a different voter base in 62 but this is a different election this is a, there's a the will of the people has been made clear the emancipation proclamation has been passed or, or been declared i guess proclaimed and the people did not vote me out so follow the will of the people um yeah a, a pretty pretty nice day of the union one of the more interesting ones i think especially the way he builds up to the 13th amendment pitch at the end um just to wrap up here we have um henry nutt writing to zebulon vance uh, talking about enslaved insurrection this is the reason i want to talk about this document and i'm kind of going to end on it it's not a very long document it's talking you know this is obviously happening the Civil War was a slave revolt in many ways. Revolution, rebellion, running throughout the South. Um, and Confederate efforts to stop this failed, right? Slaves were running away by the hundreds of thousands. But this is a straight up planned slave insurrection, which is different than just running away. But I think on some level, this enslaved men and women, if they could, just said, we're done. When the war began, they said, we're done with slavery. And they just waited until they could achieve that in fact. But some interesting things here. One is, the, what's interesting about this for me is it kind of sets up the politics of Reconstruction 
in some ways. For instance, one is this idea of white men, deserters involved in that. Like that there were whites involved in this slave rebellion. Which, of course, was part of the issue with Reconstruction, too, is the white Southerners who supported the Republican Party. They were also targeted by Klan violence. But more importantly is this idea that free blacks are like a threat to white womanhood in the South. Right? If you read Ida B. Wells' writings about lynching, she talks a lot about this libel. I don't know what to call it. I'm thinking like the blood libel against Jews. It's kind of a, a it's its own type of libel. It's a lie that was spread, but commonly believed by Southerners and probably many Northerners too, is that black men, if if given the chance, will rape, seduce or rape white white women. And that's the argument being given here. This was not. I mean, the threat of rape during slavery was white men raping black women right but as soon as slaves got free that got turned around and of course that wasn't being acknowledged really but everyone knew it everyone knew it was taking place but here it gets turned around and it's like as soon as slaves were f escaped from freedom or escaped from slavery this rumor this libel this claim gets thrown out there that now your women are in danger Right. Now, some of that was being hinted at even in the secession crisis, right? Like, oh, those black Republicans, if they free the slaves, you know, white womanhood is a threat. But it's much more direct here, I think. Um, he, this guy writes, this is nut. While at Lumberton today, I was told of the most aggravated case of rape by a Negro upon a person of a young lady daughter of a most respectable and wealthy farmer. The Negro had been sent off to be sold. The aggrieved party followed him to Lumberton and would have shot him down on sight. And then the bigger problem. Our country is so thoroughly drained of white men from 13 years upward that it's impossible to sustain a patrol. So now with all the men gone dead or in, in the war dislocated in some way, then this is going to lead. Black people are just going to be able to ravage the countryside. Why I'm emphasizing, why I'm talking so much about this is this is so much part of the racist arguments made during Reconstruction about why black people can't have like their full control. It's, it's in Birth of a Nation, right? These very, uh, these, these tropes appear in that film and in that literature. All right. There it is. Uh, and I guess that's it. We got a, a really fun document here by John Gray writing to uh, someone else, a friend or something. Uh, yeah, to his friend about meeting Sherman. We got a really nice description of, of Sherman, one of the most detailed I've ever seen. Um, really impressive. This guy's really impressed with Sherman, seeing him as like a, the most American looking man I've ever seen. So he says something like that. Um, and that's it. We got a little bit on the siege of Savannah, but we don't really need to say much about it. Um, so uh, we're coming to the end. In the next episode, I will will be the penultimate episode in this series. We'll look at documents from December to March, eighteen sixty-four to sixty-five, um, and that should take us through pretty much to the end of the fighting. I think the fighting ends in April, 
so we'll quite get there but um we're we're getting close now so uh thanks for listening uh i hope you come back for the next two episodes as i finish up this series and maybe i don't know if i'll give any final thoughts about the civil war i think i've said enough about it uh i think it'll be all together 27 episodes um on this series so i think i've said enough about the civil war to last me a while um but i hope you join me for the last two and are ready to go with mark twain uh after that so send me your thoughts or comments and i will see you next time